Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Over the last few months, I'm sure many of you have followed the story of the lawsuit against the online media website Gawker by Hulk Hogan, whose real name is Terry Balea. Uh, the lawsuit came in response to a story on Gawker about a sex tape involving Hogan sleeping with a close friend's wife, filmed by that friend who goes by the legal name Bubba the Love Sponge. And Yes, that's really his legal name. That was not his original name. Uh, Gawker published not only the story about the tape, but also a few clips from the video itself. Hogan sued and originally claimed copyright infringement and had that case tossed out of a federal court, pointing out that publishing such information is protected by the First Amendment. His lawyers then tried again, suing in Florida state court, claiming privacy violations. The judge in that case issued an injunction demanding that the story and the video be taken down, only to have an appeals court correctly note that this was also kind of violated the First Amendment. Uh, in a following trial, the judge, uh, after the judge initially admitted that she did not like the style of journalism that Gawker did, and in which she also, in my opinion, refused to allow Gawker to present all of its defense, a local jury not only sided with Hogan, but awarded him $140 million, which was even more than the $115 million that he had originally asked for. While Gawker moved to appeal the ruling, two interesting things happened. Uh, the first is that the company and its founder, Nick Denton, declared bankruptcy, leading to Gawker recently being sold off to Univision, which is keeping most of the Gawker sites running, but has shut down the flagship Gawker.com. The second interesting thing was that after rumors started flying, billionaire PayPal founder and key investor in companies like Facebook and Palantir uh, Peter Thiel admitted that he had been paying for Hogan's case. In fact, it later came out that Thiel had found a lawyer named Charles Harder and basically offered to pay significant money for basically any lawsuit brought against Gawker that might cause the company to shut down. Thiel apparently was upset by some of Gawker's coverage of himself. Uh, Harder, meanwhile, has a number of other cases also against Gawker, all of which are pretty ridiculous in my opinion, but we can discuss what they are later. Uh, to me, the case and the end result are a big problem. Um, though I will admit that I've received more pushback on this point than just about any other position I've taken on anything ever in my life. Uh, it appears that many, many people just do not like Gawker very much at all, and they don't mind that the company was destroyed and see no problem with the way in which it was done. I'm in the camp that believes that even if you disagree with the speaker, you should support their free speech rights and that there are some serious concerns about this case and what it means for free speech. Now, since all of this went down, I've been looking for someone to discuss and debate the issue with me on the podcast. And even though there were plenty of people who were vocal against my position, few were willing to actually go on record about it or to come on the podcast. So I appreciate 
uh, quite a lot, uh, startup investor and startup guru, Parker Thompson, for <laughs> stepping up the, to the plate to debate here, to have a nice little discussion. Um, if you don't know Parker, you may recognize the name that he secretly blogged and tweeted under for quite some time, which was Startup L. Jackson, who gathered quite a large and well-deserved following for his insights into startups and venture capital and, and the like. Uh, in discussing this, Parker and I actually agree on many things about this whole situation. We're not in complete disagreement, and I think this will be a pretty friendly version of a debate. Um, but unlike me, he doesn't think that what happened here is really that big of a deal in the big picture. Uh, either way, I thank him very much for, for joining us. Parker, thanks for, for taking the time and being willing to have this discussion. Uh, thanks for having me. Sure. And uh, now that I've given the the opening and biased everyone towards my position <laughs> by getting to set the the framework here let's let's hear your side of it in terms of why you're you're not so concerned overall about what's happened here sure so i, I think there's maybe a couple issues one being um, does this case represent a anything new or a general threat to free speech first amendment's rights and so on this is maybe a separate question which is uh, did Gawker deserve to be put out of business? Yeah. Um, I think with respect to the First Amendment issue, um, where we agree is this case was junk. Um, and you gave a good description of maybe why there. Um, to me, the idea that um, the, the, the rationale that was used, and I'm not an expert, but the rationale that was used to declare uh, Hulk Hogan not a public figure in this case was just uh, seemed very contrived. Um, uh, which my understanding, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, the video was of uh, Terry Bollea, not of Hulk Hogan, and therefore right. uh, he uh, was protected in a way that he wouldn't have been had he been a public figure. Right, and and just some background there for for people who don't who didn't follow this case really closely. Part of the argument that Gawker made was that they could talk about and show some of his sex life because he commented on his own sex life publicly quite frequently. And so therefore that made that issue a, a public issue. And he argued that when he was talking about it, he was Hulk Hogan, the wrestler or entertainer. Whereas when he was actually having sex, he was Terry Bollea, the private citizen. So I, I think with respect to the case, um, this was just a bad case. This isn't going to serve as precedent. Um, no higher court would um, uh, accept this rationale, and had it gone on further, it would have been overturned. So I think with respect to the First Amendment question, there's nothing new here. And we were pretty comfortable with our First Amendment rights a year ago. We should probably be pretty comfortable with where we're at today. Um, that's true of uh, the money issue, which we can talk about, right? Um, any billionaire could have spent money to pursue this sort of case a year ago, two years ago, and so on. Uh, they could do so today, and we'd be in the same position. So I think you may have come some concerns about how the law is today, and there's maybe room mm -hmm. for improvement, but I don't think that there's anything new, and so the sky isn't falling as a result of this case, the way that you might think the sky is falling after Citizens United, for example, with respect to campaign finance, right? Like, that was a fundamental shift in the law. Sure. Um, there's the other question, which is, did Gawker deserve it? So I think we, we both agree that this case was not how they should have gone out. Um, sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes you get the right result with the wrong uh, method. 
Um, so I'm not necessarily super comfortable with, uh, with exactly how they went out of business. Um, I understand people's concerns about um, the, the dynamics of this, this case, but I, I think that we, we, we can all agree that Gawker did some phenomenal journalism and said things that no one else was willing to say, and I, I personally, um, though you know, I'm arguing that um, this isn't a real bad thing and I'm not crying tears over it, um, I've been a fan of Gawker, and I think a lot of people in our industry just hate them viscerally. And that's, yeah. that, that emotion is really fed into this debate, right? It's been, who do I hate more, Teal or Gawker? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that's yeah. necessarily that useful. Yeah. Um, but I do think when you look at some of the things that they appear to have done, um, and we don't necessarily need to get into all of them, but um, there are certainly examples of going after non-public figures, uh, some cases where it appears that there may have been um, journalists who were pressured to write things that they knew to be untrue. Um, if those things are true, um, then it, it, it may be that they deserve this even though uh, it wasn't the specific case that, uh, that uh, merited uh, them being bankrupt. So the real question is, what did they do that was not journalism, and did those things merit uh, that them being put into bankruptcy? Um, I think maybe maybe that's true. And to keep it in perspective, right? Like this is why we have corporations. So Gawker can go mm -hmm. out of business. Nick Denton sells the business. He signed a non-compete, is my understanding. So he can't go start Gawker 2.0. But that's that's not a, a because he's in jail or because he's he's poor. Um, had he not signed that non-compete, he could take those same people and go start another publication. And that's probably okay, too. Um, I think he's probably at a point where he would go about it differently based on some public statements. So uh, I'll maybe stop there and say that's why I think this, <laughs> this probably isn't an a, a existential threat to the First Amendment or uh, a, a horrible outcome. Okay. So... And, and I think you're right, and we agree that this isn't this isn't some sort of new precedent. I mean, it's you know it's a state district court, which you know sort of by definition doesn't set precedent anyways, right? You need sort of higher level appeals courts before there's anything that's really sort of binding in any sort of you know legal way. Um, but I'm still somewhat concerned about it, and part of it is that. You know, to some extent, as, as some people have argued, that it, it does kind of lay out a roadmap for if you, you know, have enough money to, to fund a lawsuit and you really sort of want to take down a publication, um, you know, now you have, now you have a, a clear path to do it. And you can argue, as you kind of did in your statement, that, um, you know, anyone could have done that a year ago or, you know, five years ago or whatever. And that's true to some extent. And there are cases of certainly of um, billionaires and so lots of billionaires <laughs> suing publications for stories that they don't like. And, um, you know, Donald Trump has famously sued publications. And um, there were some billionaire that sued Mother Jones a few years ago and, and fought them for a long time and things like that. But the the to me, the, the Teal situation is a little bit different because he didn't just sort of pick most of those cases, most of the other examples were ones where, you know, the billionaire sued over a specific story about them. And it was sort of clear and you kind of knew what was happening and what mm -hmm. the lay of the land was. In Teal's case, you know, it appears that he, you know, basically threw some um, middlemen effectively or, or functionary, I don't know what, <laughs> like someone, I don't think um, 
the lawyer, Charles Harder, I, I actually knew it was Peter Thiel until much later, um, you know, got this lawyer basically set up. He actually got him to leave a larger law firm that he mm-hmm. was in to set up a new law firm. And uh, from the way it appears, um, set it up so that he would continue to fund this new law firm if it would go and find just about any lawsuit that could be filed against Gawker, basically for the sole purpose of, of taking down Gawker. And that is a, kind of a different degree um, than just having a billionaire sue a publication over a story he didn't like. And that's where, you know, and, and I'll say lots of people actually disagree with you. They actually think that the, the Hogan case was, is a good one and that the result is a good result. Um, where I, I mean, we can discuss that, but I think both of us disagree with that. But um, if you look at all the other cases, they sort of get more and more ridiculous. And, mm-hmm. you know, so my concern is you can pile on a bunch of ridiculous lawsuits. And if you're doing jurisdiction shopping, like they did in this case until mm-hmm. they found a court that agreed with them in, in one of the cases, let alone the other cases, um, eventually you might find, you know, a, a court willing to, to do this and, and lead to an award that is, you know, business destroying. And so I worry about not the, the legal precedent so much as the roadmap for someone who decides I want to take out this company and I, here's a way to do it for a few million dollars to fund a, a series of lawsuits, you know, where the true motives are hidden and, and I can, you know, just sort of pile on until the, the publication is destroyed. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a couple ways to think about that. One is, had this been a more sympathetic character, and there was some discussion of this, right? There was some discussion that a billionaire was going to come in on the other side, and we could have just ridden this out to the Supreme <laughs> Court, right? And if everything you say is true and it's reasonable to assume that it is, uh, Teal would have lost, right? Um, mm-hmm. So n- no one stepped up. There was some talk, I believe, of Pierre Omidyar stepping up. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but... So we could have seen that, and that would have been one way where you might have achieved justice in this specific case. Um, I think it's worth pointing out as well that I think Teal started with people who had more legitimate cases, and many of them just weren't willing to participate. Yeah. Um, so he went to the people who were willing to sue. It, it may have been that we just saw a basket of the bad cases and um, not the ones that would have had more legitimate claims. Um, I think the reason I'm not so worried about um, uh, the, the roadmap question is um, it also gives us a roadmap for if you wanted to reform the system to make those things not possible, well, we know exactly what to do, right? Like, let's, um, uh, let's work on potentially tort reform, potentially reforming how you shop for jurisdictions, um, potentially for reforming um, consequences for frivolous lawsuits, uh, so anti-slap and so on. So there's also a roadmap for how we would allow folks like Peter Thiel to fund uh, cases uh, where the poor had some legitimate uh, grievance and didn't have the resource to defend themselves, which I would argue would be a good thing, mm-hmm. and at the same time prevent uh, these sorts of frivolous cases um, so I, I think that the, I wish the thing that we were talking about w- was not who's a worse human being, Peter <laughs> Thiel or, or Nick Denton. And instead we were saying, hey, how do we reform policy such that um, we enable um, reasonable lawsuits um, with third parties and make it harder for the Hogan case to happen? Yeah, and, and I, I think that's 
a reasonable point of view, though, I'm not sure that anyone is actually having that discussion, <laughs> right? So hopefully like, they're listening to this podcast. Right <laughs> yeah, now. sure. I mean, so if if that were the case, you know, but but uh, you know, right now the the argument basically seems to have descended into um, nobody, you know, nobody wants to do anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. You know, you have you have one camp that are happy that Gawker's dead. And they don't want to see any reform. They think this was good. Um, you have others who are pushing laws that would make this kind of thing even easier. You know, in the um, New York Times piece that that Teal put out uh, recently, basically defending his position, he talked up this law, which he he referred to as. Um, the Gawker bill, which mm-hmm. nobody, including the sponsors of the bill, have referred to it as the Gawker bill. He seems to be the only person who have done that, um, you know, which is a, a, a bill that that um, Jackie Spire put out, which is focused on dealing with revenge porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, revenge porn is a whole other um, category, a whole other issue. Genre. Yeah, G- yeah genre to, to to discuss and sort of the issues there. Um, but, you know, and, and I'm certainly not in favor of revenge porn in, in any way, shape or form, but, but the bill itself to me has lots and lots of problems. And yet that, so that's the only law that, or, or legal change that's being talked about um, in relationship, however, tangentially to this case. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I actually think would make the problem worse and open up all sorts of you know, more, more opportunities for questionable lawsuits of this nature. Um, though, you know, that, that bill tries to carve out a sort of public interest exception, but, you know, that was part of the argument that, that Gawker was, was making in terms of, you know, who's a public figure and and whatnot in Uh in their case and, and it failed. And so, you know, if it were true that we were suddenly hearing, you know, calls for, for tort reform, um, jurisdiction shopping, anti-slap laws in relationship to this case, then sure, I would agree with you, but but I don't see that happening. I mean, I would suggest that um, that is not Peter Thiel's fault. (laughs) <laughs> um, right, like this is the sure. look. We can we can blame him for what uh, he's he's done wrong, uh, but I don't think the obligation is upon um, folks like that to uh, solve your problem. Um, they've yep. got their perspective, so it, it may be that there is not uh, there aren't there aren't folks like you at the table. Um, but I I think where we're at today, and I you you probably remember, uh, you know, fifteen years ago, you and I were both looking at copyright and mm-hmm. the sky was falling and uh you know 12 year olds were getting sued for d- downloading songs and there were these legitimate questions about you know how should copyright law work in an era where the the means of making copies exist in the hand of every 12 year old right that's a very different thing and we need to think about the law a little bit differently um we we realized after a while there that the sky wasn't falling well today we have this problem with respect to right, privacy. Everybody's a publisher. We got our Snapchat videos. We got these uh, cell phones in our pockets. There are naked videos of a lot of people out there. Yeah. And I don't know that, as a policy question, we've really dealt with this at all. And it seems to me that the next um, ten or fifteen years are going to be that process, right? And this is going to start with good laws or bad laws, and it's going to work its way through the courts. And we're going to look at examples and people are going to get savvier about the technology. Some problems are going to go away, right? Like, so 
over the next 15 years, we're going to figure this out. But I believe that there will be um, new and meaningful carve-outs for privacy, right? We need to think about what privacy means in this new era. And uh, it's and Peter Thiel is just, you know, as he, as he is in the venture business, right out in front of this thing. He's out there <laughs> trying to define the world that he wants to see exist, and that's okay. So mm -hmm. I think the response needs to be, and I would really love to see this in, in, in broader media, we need to be talking about, great, like, if we don't like that, great, let's stop saying what we don't like and start saying what we do like here. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think to some extent this is, it is kind of highlighting, like, where these sort of two ideals sort of collide these the, the the sort of first amendment free speech ideal and the privacy rights ideal right and figuring out where you know how those two things fit together um, is something that is changing pretty rapidly in part because of all the things that you talked about and the internet and mobile phones and the fact that everyone now is a you know a, a publisher of some kind um but you know if that's the case if we're going to figure well you know if we're going to figure this out i'm i'm not entirely thrilled with the idea of it being like local courts and state jurisdictions um that are sort of grappling with these issues especially when a lot of them come down to kind of an emotional mm -hmm. um situation rather than actually thinking through these issues i mean so to go back to, and and I don't mean to keep doing this because it's just a minefield, but like the revenge porn um, situation, it's one of those things where a lot of the laws, you know, you can look at this concept of revenge porn and say, this is bad. And I think lots of people, almost everyone, hopefully almost everyone will agree that revenge porn and the concept of revenge porn is bad. But how do you create a law that says that revenge porn is illegal, but that doesn't also cut out all sorts of important, legitimate, protected speech. Um, I think maybe to draw a parallel, sorry to interrupt, um, I think maybe to draw a parallel, I, I remember when the DMCA uh, was put into law and there was quite a bit of um, backlash on what you might call the copy left there. Mm -hmm. um, and, over, and there were some problems with that law. Um, over time, it seems to have worked reasonably well. Maybe, maybe you want to challenge that, but it seems to have worked reasonably well. It's not Parts perfect. We've come out with some, uh, carved out some exemptions and tried to um, uh, evolve that law. Um, mm -hmm. Courts have gotten their hands on it, and um, may maybe it's not that bad. So maybe, I'm just throwing it out there, maybe we start with a revenge porn law that you know folks like you and I think is horrible. And... We work through a couple iteration. The courts carve out uh, some exemptions for things like legitimate uh, free speech, public interest issues, and we end up with something that uh, does a reasonable job of balancing these public interest issues and and rights of privacy. So uh, you could maybe talk uh, to to the specifics of the law that's being proposed. I actually don't know much about it beyond what uh, Peter Thiel has uh, said in its favor. But um, we, we certainly need something there and we might not get it right the first time. And m maybe that's OK. Yeah, um, I hope that's true. <laughs> I mean, I hope if, if we're going down the path with this law and I'm not sure there's enough support to get the law actually passed. So there are sort of state versions that are that are pretty similar, um, some of which have 
you know, are sort of going through a judicial process right now. And so maybe we'll start to see that. Um, but, and so, you know, I, I, I like the optimistic viewpoint that it'll work out <laughs> in the end. I mean, I, I think you're right that, you know, for the most part, um, key parts of the DMCA that, that people were most worried about, um, thanks to some pretty good court decisions has been molded into something that I think is pretty effective. <laughs> and in um, fact, now the folks that were really on the side of yes. the DMCA and thought they'd won a victory are complaining about it, right? Yes. Like we're complaining about the uh, safe harbor provisions and some of the stuff that, uh, you know, they wrote the law and it's not good enough for them today. And the folks on the other side, I mean, I remember I was truly in the <laughs> sky is falling camp as yep. you may have been as well. Yep. And, um, you know, I, my lesson there was, I, I think you really got to take a long view, and I think the courts do. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think a lot of folks that are most concerned don't have a long view with respect to um, how the courts handle these things and uh, evolve these things over time. And I think it does take a long time. All right. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I hope you're right, <laughs> is what I'll say. I, I'm doesn't you know, mean we can't work now. To, yeah. To, and I, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's still important to sort of push on that. And so on that point, to, to go back to kind of the, the Gawker situation specifically, um, and you sort of brought up the, the question of whether or not they deserve it. Um, and, and we've sort of mentioned in passing, like the whole concept of anti-slap laws. So I, I did want to kind of dig in a little bit on, on that point, which, um, so anti-slap laws, for people who don't know, um, SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. Um, and they're basically state laws at this point in, in about half the states um, that say, like, you know, if there's a lawsuit where it's pretty clear that the entire point of the lawsuit is to silence someone um, or a publication or something like that, there are certain mechanisms that help protect the speaker um, uh, and basically it, it, you know, a good anti-slap law and there's like a whole bunch of them. So there are a, a varying quality, um, a good anti-slap law basically stops the process of discovery, which is kind of where the biggest expense comes in, in most lawsuits early on, especially, and also makes it very easy to get the case thrown out and often to get um, attorney's fees recovered. Um, Florida, where this case was heard, um, has a fairly limited anti-slap law. It's actually recently changed and become a more powerful anti-slap law. I don't know if that was sort of too late for this case. Um, but to me, like the whole sort of Peter Thiel project, <laughs> like, you know, whatever it was called, take down Gawker or whatever, um, is sort of a quintessential slap case. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't care so much about you know, the specifics of the case, he just wanted to destroy the publication. And that mm -hmm. is, you know, strikes me as basically the definition of a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Um, and so, you know, there, there are efforts underway to create a federal anti-slap law that would sort of standardize them across the, the states. Um, I guess. Well, I don't know. Do you, do you, do you yeah, I mean, look, th these should exist. I think uh, we both agree that the Hogan case uh, shouldn't have been decided the way it, it had been. I, th I think if we were sitting here today saying, you know what, we all agree that Gawker did some horrible things that um, they should be 
um, culpable for. Uh, but none of those people are actually willing to play ball with Teal, and therefore Gawker's still in business and justice weren't served. Uh, I, I would be okay with that scenario. I'd, I'd be perfectly fine with a scenario where, you know, we all agree that Gawker should be, uh, you know, held to account and they hadn't been, uh, because that's justice. It's not purpose. They're per perfect, right? You, um, uh, you don't always get the right outcome, and the goal is to build a system that most, uh, as often as possible, gets you the right outcome. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think we need to try to get there. I just think in this case, um, had you know, had had Peter Thiel funded, uh, I think there's the, you know the Condé Nast guy who mm -hmm. uh, was, was his life was destroyed. So maybe that's a legitimate case, right? Had we been sitting here talking about that case, maybe we'd look at it a little bit differently. Um, maybe not. <laughs> maybe you want yeah. So so no, and and that's a really good point. Like so, the the other two cases that people bring out the most are like the Condé Nast exec who who was not necessarily a public person in any shape or form and and Gawker basically outed um I guess outed him and that he was um paying a male escort or something along those lines. Um and the other case that a lot of people bring up is the the Justine Sacco um, situation where she was a, a PR person who made a um, a joke on Twitter right before getting onto an airplane um, and that exploded uh, and her life was basically destroyed um, from from people um, recognizing that it was maybe a joke in poor taste and then expanding that to being the worst joke ever, <laughs> the mm -hmm. worst statement ever um and that really certainly impacted her reputation um and so there are arguments that based on those two cases which maybe are stronger cases for gawker being just bad <laughs> morally repugnant or whatever um i still you know come down on the side that they have every right to to publish those things mm -hmm. um that the response then should be just you know more public outrage not at the targets of those articles but at gawker itself yeah, yeah. Oh. and that you know the response can and should be people you know speaking out against gawker or, or advertisers pulling out i mean if gawker mm -hmm. went out of business because their advertisers stopped funding them because they weren't comfortable with those kinds of articles that would be a completely fair result well, and this, this is where I have to be careful because uh, say I'm not a lawyer and uh, you may be uh, more expert at this than I, but th there is a right to uh, privacy or publicity, right, that allows private citizens to be treated separately uh, than public figures, right? Um, and so I think that's yeah. the argument with respect to the Condé Nast AI. And uh, there was another case where a woman had a video of her being raped, published, and mm -hmm. Um, some of these cases where it seems to be destroying people's lives for page views who are not public figures. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a legitimate question there, and I really think this is the policy question, is um, what is the right to privacy um, in an era where you're in a bathroom and somebody has a cell phone, right? What's, what's, what, are the, what are your rights to your, uh, your image, your likeness, your name, um, and... What is journalism? Is that journalism? Uh, yeah. So, so I, I think those are really legitimate questions. Um, and I think you could come down on the side that, look, this is all journalism. And to your point, 
we should really just be talking about um, whether the market holds these publications to account and people can feel it's distasteful or not, or is there a legitimate legal issue? Um, I, I want to live in a world where we get that balance right, but where um, my Snapchats, you know, if I have, you know, naked Snapchats, you know what, that's my right. And uh, I don't think that Gawker should have a right to publish those things. Yeah, and, and here's where I think um, where it gets tricky. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, conceptually, I can agree with you. My problem is how do you put that into practice in a way that, that actually works, that, that doesn't create massive problems? See, actually, I, don't, I, I think this is exactly why we have courts, right? Courts do messy things. And I think mm -hmm. that one thing that drives me nuts about the technology industry is we want to find ways of um, making things um, uh, algorithmic, so to speak, right? Like we want, <laughs> yeah, we, want sure. we want an answer. There's yeah. just not an answer sometimes, right? Like, yeah. so I mean, I spent uh, a number of years studying fair use, which I know you've looked at, right? Yes. Like, what is fair use? Well, you know it when you see it, right? Like, these are <laughs> there is no answer, and and yeah. and we we get up every day and we we survive, right? Like the system works. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be perfect. We need a system that gets the right answer the vast majority of the time. And then courts are really good at this. Yeah. So, but, but here's the thing. I, and, and I agree to some extent with that point, I think, but I also think like, you know, you can use that argument in a dangerous way too, which is like basically, well, we never need to have these rules because the courts are always here to figure out what's fair. Um, and, and having some rules of the road is actually pretty helpful because otherwise, you know, if you're always guessing, then you can create some, some pretty serious chilling effects as well. Um, but, but, so the, but the distinction that I want to go back to in, in the, the, the issue of sort of privacy versus journalism, and this is one that I haven't heard that many people talk about. I, I think that there's a legitimate privacy issue or a potentially legitimate privacy complaint, legal complaint against whoever originally accesses the private content and then seeks to share it. Um, so, you know, if you have a private video on, you know, uh, uh, on your Snapchat and somebody else who is not the person that you sent it to, for example, um, somehow hacks in and takes it or whoever, you know, originally took the the video of um hulk hogan which there's some dispute over whether or not he knew there was a video going on but if it truly was secret then i think he has a legitimate privacy complaint against whoever filmed the video but that's different than being the publisher who does the journalism task of, of then publishing about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I might reject the premise that these things are journalism, but I, th I think that the problem with that is, I mean, we've, we've seen cases where we try to use things like um, uh, computer fraud laws, hacking laws, mm -hmm. or copyright laws to try to go, uh, affect the policy outcome that we want to see. Sure. And that just, to me, is... I, I just don't think that's a very good way of affecting policy. You're really using tools that were designed uh, for specific po policy goals and trying to use them to achieve very different policy goals. And I just, I, I just think in general, like that's how you get 12 year olds being sued, right? <laughs> like that's how you get yeah. 12 year olds being sued for copyright infringement because a record label wants, um, uh, want, you know, wants to, to have a business model or that's how you get, you know, Aaron Schwartz being sued for, 
um, uh, computer hacking laws. I'm, I'm uh, forgetting the specific um, law, but you know, if, if I pull data out of an API that's open and I get charged for hacking because that's the only law that we have, that's just that's just a misapplication of this law. So I would prefer to have a specific policy objective and a law that seeks to achieve that specific objective. And then let's try to optimize that law and have the courts push back if it's not working right or it infringes upon uh, constitutionally protected rights. But but I'm just personally not satisfied. Like, I think what you maybe I'm jumping to a conclusion, but it seems to me that the way that you would uh, deal with the scenario that you're talking about is if you got my naked Snapchats, I could either sue you for copyright infringement uh, or I could sue you for breaking into my computer, right? And those those really aren't the things that you did that were wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think I'm I was looking for something different. Like I, I certainly would not be <laughs> supportive of extending either copyright or like CFAA mm-hmm. um, hacking anti-hacking laws to something like that but i could see a situation where um where you could use some sort of uh like you know privacy law um to 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 go after someone you know it's to some extent sort of like a a peeping tom kind of law anti-peeping tom kind of law to say that you know getting into your thing was not necessarily uh, you know, a hacking violation, but you violated, um, you know, your the, or whoever you know hacked in violated your privacy rights in in accessing those images. Well, imagine a case like this. Let's imagine that I shared this video with you because I wanted you to see my video, um, yeah. and then you sent it to Gawker. Yeah. Um, this is a case where um, I've given you this thing. You didn't hack into it. You have control of it. And what you've done that I think is wrong. Um, the policy question is, was it wrong for you to share that without my permission? And right. then the second one is, was it wrong for this publication to put it on the internet? And so maybe I'm in, you know, a public figure, but let's say my, my cousin who doesn't use the internet. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how you, who, how you deal with that in, in the scenario you're proposing. Yeah. Uh, but certainly you can just pass a law that applies directly to folks that might publish this. Um, yeah, but then you run into very serious First Amendment questions very, very quickly. Um, yeah, I guess I'm fairly comfortable personally with um, uh, particularly the higher courts in this country mm-hmm. uh, and their uh, sort of treatment of First Amendment issues. Um, so maybe that's naive or maybe you have a different perspective. Um, but I, I feel like generally we, we do a pretty good job. Um, maybe an issue I'd I'd be curious to get your perspective on to ask a question uh, would be, I read a really pretty interesting article the other day talking about how, you know, the, 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 you know, thought piece on Gawker saying, you know, the, the, the reality is Gawker's no longer the bottom feeder. It's Reddit and it's Twitter Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's normal people, quote unquote, who have become more Gawker than Gawker and therefore they're irrelevant. I thought that was a provocative and interesting question and uh, maybe a, maybe a, uh, you know, a response to what I just proposed, right? So great, we can pass these laws. Uh, Reddit has a 
safe harbor that allows them to not be culpable if someone puts this on Reddit and then it's on right. the internet, right? So maybe, you know, maybe I'm fighting a battle that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's a really interesting point. And, and basically, you know, in, in those cases, you've sort of separated out the liability and, and Reddit thanks to CDA 230, which we feel very strongly is an important law that was very useful for the internet, isn't liable. Um, and so, yeah, there there is an interesting point there. And it, it's one that, you know, I think I saw the same article and saw the same discussion that people were making. Like, oh, yeah, hey, that's <laughs> uh, that, that maybe this all changes, um, because when you separate out the the liability from the platform, from the publication, from whatever, um, some of these questions become trickier. And I think actually that is, though, some of what this revenge porn law is targeting. Um, but that also raises concerns. And again, like, you're right that, you know, there's no way you're going to sort of perfect it. Um, but you do worry about like, you know, what happens in situations where you have like, um, an Anthony Weiner, you know, uh, posting public, you know, posting. Oh, he did it to himself. So right. Well, example, in, in that case, but you know, what if there are other cases where like, you know, there, there is uh, an image that, you know, that where there's a legitimate, well, is he even I mean, saying I think legitimate? If there's a, yeah. Look, if there's a legitimate news, uh, legitimate public interest, so, right? So, but, but, I, I guess the question is, wh how, who decides what is a legitimate public interest? That is exactly what we have courts for, right? Like, that's why they exist. And, uh, and it's not but, that reasonable people can't predict what the courts are going to say, right? Like, I was shocked at the Hogan outcome. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, right? Like, reasonable people like you and I went, ah, you're never going to decide that that way. Um, I don't actually think, in, this is, I, I, I really do think that this is, um, given a good law, assuming there's a good law, I think it's, generally an academic question you may see instances where you get it wrong but if the alternative well let's just not try at all i just don't think that's satisfactory i think that the, the public interest right the global maxima is um having a law that works pretty well most of the time yeah my my concern is is having courts step in to determine what is newsworthy right is that's an editorial decision making function and i i still at a gut level find that very problematic on a on a first amendment basis i guess i mean i think two points on that one is they already do this right like uh well before the internet um courts made decisions rarely and narrowly about um, newsworthiness, right? Um, very, so we have precedent that, yeah, yeah, so yeah pr but we have precedent that predates the internet. So this isn't new. Um, I, I, I don't, so I, I think as well, the other, the, the other legitimate issue that's worth, the reason I think this is, this is a important question for our time is that the editorial function is very different than it used to be, right? And, sure. I, you know, I think sometimes you can overstate change in technology, but I think this one is meaningful. Um, it, it is not the case anymore that you have, you know, four local papers, a couple national papers, and um, the editorial function is a small number of people with significant businesses that um, are, are making, generally speaking, thoughtful decisions, right? We, we, we live in a time where everybody is an editor, and even for 
publications that make money doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a function of how fast, how much, how many page views. Um, I, I think that we have a very light, meaningfully different editorial function today in practice than we did um, 15 or 20 years ago, right? So I think that it actually is a legitimate um, uh, question. Do we need to revisit how we think about this editorial function? Does it serve the same purpose? Does it work in the same way? Or, or does it work in a different way that requires us to think about different policy? I think it's probably the case. And Gawker's mm-hmm. an interesting example of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm still uncomfortable with it. I, I understand. Yeah, you should be. You should be. Look, look yeah. we, we shouldn't. We should not restrict speech lightly. Right. Yeah. Like we just shouldn't. So, so there are things that we there are things that aren't legal to say. Right. Like classic example yelling fire in a crowded theater right uh, like so which is it's, it's not true but oh, yeah. no <laughs> oh. Damn it. Uh, can, do, you, do you have an example for me what can't i say um the 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 legitimate example and the, the uh, which are very very narrowly defined are that um you cannot defame someone in very very specific circumstances <laughs> now people think uh def- defamation is being very broad but it's very very narrowly focused so if you're talking about a public figure it has to be something that is both false and malicious and mm-hmm. and intended to 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 do harm with the, the thing or um the other sort of actual restriction on on speech is um if you're saying something that is um you know, very, very likely to create imminent harm. In other words, uh-huh. like, you know, pointing to you and saying, go beat up Parker, like that could be unprotected speech. Hmm. Um, but, but just saying something that is inflammatory or um, anger making does not, does not qualify for that. So there are some very, very narrowly restricted areas where it is true that certain kinds of speech is, is considered unprotected. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I am also sort of personally um, not entirely happy. And, and this is where the, the, the fire in a crowded theater line comes up quite frequently, which is like, that is the classic one that everyone cites is like, oh, well, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. Therefore, this other kind of speech that I don't like also could be easily regulated. Um, and so, first of all, it's wrong. You can shout fire in a crowded theater in most cases. <laughs> um but also like just taking because there are some examples of you know um regulated or 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 uh speech that is considered illegal that that means it's okay to just step in and make other speech illegal because that does create a sort of slippery slope that is somewhat dangerous yeah and i don't know that i would put put it quite that way right uh i i think the way to think about it is um I think when you think about the First Amendment, right, and, and sort of what are the first principles there, this is intended to serve the public interest, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess the way I, th- I would think about this is if there is speech that serves no public interest, A, and B, causes significant harm. So if both of those things are true, right, we can define a category of speech that both serves no public interest and causes significant harm. Those are the cases where in the most thoughtful, careful, don't fuck it up way possible, 
um, we want to look at that and see if we can do better. Except that that leaves open who gets to define public interest, right? And, and that's where all sorts of dangerous stuff comes in. I think we know what that means. And may, maybe I'm naive here. That, so the, conceding that, that uh, yeah, I hate being on the side. I've <laughs> put myself on the side of, uh, you know, uh, attacking the First Amendment, uh, which I, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with. But um, uh, I guess the point I would make is I, I think that I, I, I think that the courts uh, you know, serve a valuable purpose in this regard. And I think if we look back over the last couple hundred years of U.S. history, um, we, we haven't been perfect, but we've done a pretty good job, particularly over a long period of time. Okay, and and I'll uh, because we could just keep going around yeah, right. <laughs> this for, for a really long time, and we've already gone over sort of the normal amount of time that we, we do this podcast. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it off there, but but I I will say, and I'll give you a final word, but but I will say, in in response to that, like yes, the trend overall has been good, but there are are lots of examples of of mischief happening mm-hmm. within those spaces and i worry greatly and i'm significantly concerned about opening up new avenues for mischief that is designed to silence a form of speech that someone doesn't like and i think that's what happened in this case and then i'll, I'll let you have the last word before i we close it out i mean i would just say i think you're you're right um these are things that we shouldn't talk about lightly we should be always worried about the First Amendment. I don't know that this, this specific instance, as we sort of talked about, is the sky is falling, but it's, um, it's good that we're talking about these things. And uh, maybe as a call to action, I think, I think our, our call to action is uh, we got to go out and, you know, try to affect some legislation that uh, actually achieves these things that we, we know can make, uh, make the situation better, as opposed to letting uh, Teal um, do that while we sit and rage tweet about it. <laughs> I think that that is a very very good summary, and I think we'll we'll certainly have more to say on on these and related issues. And uh, 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 Parker, thank you very much for for joining us uh, uh, on the podcast and and being willing to have a, a fun and interesting discussion on this, uh, even where you know I think there is plenty that we agree on and some things that we disagree on. And that's where the interesting discussions come uh, and um, we'll be sure to have you back again on, on other topics where maybe we, we don't have to fight over the first amendment. Yeah. Can I be on the side of freedom next time? <laughs> yeah. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to pick that side and we'll go from there. <laughs> well, we'll see what we can do. All right. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the